How are we doing? Amen. Praise God. Good to see you guys this morning. I want to start by sharing with you a very personal story. A little heartbroken over it as I think about it. But um, so we're talking about when life became clear to us this morning and when your purpose became clear to us. And I thought I would be vulnerable and share uh, when my purpose in life became clear. Um, it's about when I was five years old, maybe even a little younger. I think I was a little younger, probably three years old. But I remember it. I remember going. It was a snowy day in Saginaw, Michigan. Um, and my dad had a wonderful treat for me. He took me to a charity game, charity basketball game. And at that charity basketball game, I met Irvin Magic Johnson. After the game, I got a chance to go down and shake his hand. And, and he was as tall as I thought he would be. He was as smooth as you would ever imagine in person. Yes, he was just that smooth. He was just that cool. And like I said, I was three years old, something like that, four years old. But I remember, I remember meeting Irvin Magic Johnson. And I remember that day saying to myself, I'm going to be a basketball player. That, that encounter brought clarity to my life. And so elementary school, I played a little ball. Junior high, I started playing more ball and practicing and Mom and dad built a goal outside for me, and I would practice every single day playing basketball, dribbling up and down that little square court that they built for me, taking 50, 60, 70, 80, 100 shots, and it just continued to increase because I remember meeting Magic Johnson, and I remember saying, I'm going to be just like him. And then 10th grade happened, and I quit. That's the end of the story. All right. All um, right. <laughs> What's the point? Point is, encounters change us. Encounters change us. Even people with very little basketball skill can be changed by an encounter so much that they think, no matter how much their ability and their jump shot is telling them you have no chance, they still say, I got a chance because of certain encounters in life. There are three encounters in this text this morning that I want to focus on. And those three encounters changed the lives of the people in which, in which are, changed the lives of the people that are involved in the encounter. There's an encounter with Mary Magdalene. There's an encounter with the remaining 10 disciples that were gathered in a home. And there is an encounter with the 11th disciple who later on joined the 10th. And each encounter had a profound change or created a profound change in those who were involved in the encounter. Every single one of these encounters represents a complete shift in position, a complete shift in thought, a complete shift in emotions from, from, from the time in which uh, preceded the encounter to the, to the time after the encounter. There is a complete and total shift in each and every one of, each and every one of these single people. And all of these encounters center around one particular moment, and that is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The resurrection of Jesus Christ 
transforms everybody that comes in contact with that, later on comes in contact with that resurrected Savior. We find this bunch in John chapter 20, before the resurrection, this bunch is a defeated bunch, a distressed bunch, a doubtful bunch, a fearful bunch, all as a result of basically having life literally sucked out of them as they watch the one whom they followed for years hanging on a tree, gasping his last breaths, bleeding profusely from the piercings in his hands and his feet and his side and from the crown of thorns mashed upon his head. So these folks don't have a lot of clarity right now in concerning life. They don't really know what exactly life is supposed to be about. And that leaves them with all sorts, all range of emotions to deal with. Can you, can you imagine the questions that are, that are circling their, their minds in this hour as they, as they think through the last couple of days that have transpired in front of them? You know, what, what did we, what did we follow him for? Maybe some are asking. And to what end did we follow him? To, to what, to what gain, to what reward did we follow him? Why did we sacrifice everything? Did we waste the last three years of our, of our lives? And, or, or even possibly did we waste our lives, period? But what comes, what comes as a result of these encounters is clarity. Clarity of what Christ had been speaking about all along. Because he's been, he's been giving them clues throughout his life, throughout his ministry. And what comes as a result of this resurrection is clarity, much needed clarity. Because see, the absence of clarity regarding the calling of God, regarding the mission of God, regarding the purposes of God for our lives often leads to very unnecessary doubt. When we have no clarity as to what God is doing and why he's doing it, then it leaves us oftentimes doubting him in ways that we should not. In fact, it's the, it's the reason that we, that, that when everyone hears the report about Jesus resurrecting in the first, first nine to ten verses of this chapter, nobody's moved. Because they have no clarity. As a matter of fact, verse nine says, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. They did not have clarity concerning what Jesus had actually come to do. And so when Mary, or when, what Jesus had came to do, and so when Mary shows up and says, hey, the body's missing. He's not there. They all run and they all see the linen cloth from the body, the linen cloth that was used to wrap him. They see it folded neatly in the tomb and, and yet they leave and, and there's only one that's really convinced and that's, that's the author of this gospel, John. It says he saw and he believed. But the rest of the people still leave distressed and fearful and doubtful and, because they had no clarity as to what Jesus was there to actually do. And so because they had no clarity, they were left with doubt. So I want to highlight a few of these encounters. Let's start with Mary. Mary, verse 11, is left standing outside of the tomb after everyone has begun to trickle out. In verse 11, it says that she stood outside the tomb weeping. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus 
had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. How do we find Mary before her encounter with Jesus? We find her distressed. We find her depressed. We find her upset. We find Mary weeping because she believes someone has taken the body. Again, no clarity. She doesn't know what Jesus had actually come to do. So she simply thinks that the body's been taken. Contrary to some popular belief, there is zero evidence, by the way, that Mary Magdalene was a prostitute. That's a very popular sentiment, but there is no evidence concerning that. That is a leap in logic that was performed during the Middle Ages, and they basically use chapter 7 of Luke and chapter 8. There's two women that's mentioned. Mary's mentioned in chapter 8. A sinful woman that 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 um, that anoints Jesus' feet is mentioned in chapter 7. And basically what they do is they tie the two women together and thus we have Mary Magdalene, the sinful woman. But there's no evidence that that woman in chapter 7 was the same woman in chapter 8. In fact, there's more evidence that Mary Magdalene was probably a wealthy woman. A woman with means. In fact, Mary Magdalene, according to Luke chapter 8, financed the ministry of Jesus along with other women. And Mary Magdalene comes from a, from a place of means. Mary Magdalene represents the location in which she came from, which was a very prosperous fishing, fishing city, rather. And so Mary Magdalene, after having demons cast out of her, her, according to Luke chapter 8, begins this ministry with Jesus. And she follows Jesus throughout the rest of his ministry. And so now, Mary Magdalene, we find her, like many of the other faithful women, standing strong as they see their Lord and Savior on a cross dying. And of course now, as she went to tend to his body, she finds that the tomb is empty and she is left weeping and left distressed and left depressed. It's phenomenal that the resurrection account begins with Mary. If you want to make a story, if you want to make up a story, you wanted, pe- and you wanted people to believe that story, you wouldn't make up a story by starting with Mary. One part of the diminishing of women in that particular time and in that particular place was that the testimony of women wasn't even considered reliable evidence in a court of law. And so if you want to make up a story, you don't start with the most non-credible evidence that you can conjure up that's available to you. But Jesus does, and the disciples do, because they aren't trying to make up a story. They're telling an account. A real account. They're just simply writing down what actually happened. The truth of the matter is, is that this makes no sense if you're trying to make up a resurrection, but this makes perfect sense if we're talking about Jesus being truly resurrected because it was Jesus that was always seeking to raise the honor and the respect and the dignity of women around him. In a culture in which women were treated like second-class citizens, Jesus brought them into his ministry, dignified them as daughters of God. So it makes perfect sense that Jesus to use, would use this moment of himself being raised to raise again, again the dignity and honor of women around him. But what again, what, what is Mary's initial response? It's, it's sadness, it's grief, but she she, she bears witness to something in verses 13. 
It says, they said to her, why are you weeping? She said, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, "Why, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And supposing him to be a gardener. Now listen, Jesus is standing right in front of her. She can't recognize him. She's been with him for three years. Already we have a notable detail about the resurrected body. Is that even though Jesus is standing right in front of her, there is something going on where she can't, she can't even perceive who he is. There are other nuggets for us to look at in this text and we'll continue to look at it. But nevertheless, he goes on uh, and he says to her in verse 16, Mary. Mary, and she turned and she said to him, Rabbani, which means teacher, one word, and everything changes from fear and anxiety to to joy, from sorrow to peace, Mary. She immediately recognizes who is in front of her when she hears her Savior's voice, her Master's voice. Jesus called her name and she immediately knew who he was. And everything about Mary immediately changes. It reminds me of John chapter 10 where where John writes uh, recording Jesus to him the gatekeeper opens the sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he has brought out all of his own he goes before them and the sheep follow him for they know his voice, a stranger they will not follow, but they, but, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. Like Mary, everything changed the day that God called our names. Many in this room, including me, was lost in despair and grief, unable to find our way to Jesus, unable to notice him until he called our names. And immediately, what I once didn't behold about him, I now could behold of him. What I once missed in him, I was able to obtain in him. The resurrection reminds us that Jesus now carries the power to speak to his own by name and everything changes when he does. Mary's response is understandable. She goes and she hugs him and she clings to him as possible, as tight as she possibly can and, and never lets him go. And Jesus' response is quite different. He says, do not cling to me for I have not yet ascended to the Father. There's, min- there's much speculation when you look at the different thoughts that the theologians have concerning why would Jesus say something like this. But the most popular thought actually is a pretty simple one. He just wanted her to get back to doing what he had, what he needed for her to do in the moment, which was to go and tell the others. And so he tells her, go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Pay attention to those words. Pay attention to that message. I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Go and tell my brothers. This is the only time in the Gospel of John that Jesus utters words concerning the disciples, brothers. The resurrection has brought a shift in relationship. When Jesus rose from the grave, those who were distant from God were given the chance to be brought near 
to God, but not just simply near as acquaintances, not simply near as friends, but near as family with God. In the resurrection of Christ, those who were strangers were eligible to become adopted family. Romans 8, Paul tells us that you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The resurrection makes family possible. But it, it, was, it was not just the resurrection or, or, or it's not just family being made possible with God that the resurrection makes possible, but it's family being made with one another. He calls us brothers and sisters, but we're not just his brothers and his sisters, but we are collectively together, what, brothers and sisters now. Through the resurrection, we are family, not just with God, but we are family with one another, which is why we can have all these different groups and all these different cultures and all these different different appearances in, in one space. Why? Because we represent something greater than our culture, something greater than our appearances. We represent the family of God that has been made possible through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let me ask you, are you engaging your fellow Christians around you like family? Are you living in the reality of this family? Are you living in the reality of the resurrection? Because the resurrection made possible family. So what does your engagement with your fellow Christians say about the resurrection that you proclaim to believe? Are you tracking with that? Mary's encounter with the resurrected Savior teaches us that even in his people's, in, in his people's ignorances, Concerning his, concerning his purposes, concerning his plans, God still knows their name. And through the resurrection, we not only have experience of having our name called, but we have the experience of being called brothers and sisters of Christ. But he moves from that encounter to another encounter in verse 19. And we read, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the door is being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. And so the next question is, how do we find the 10 before their encounter with God? I say 10 because we're obviously subtracting one in Judas and then we're subtracting another in Thomas. And we find that 10 fearful, scared of the Jews, worried about the outcome that lies ahead for them now that Jesus has been crucified. In fact, we read of Peter, and we've read of Peter just a few weeks ago when Corey preached about Peter denying Jesus, so scared of what was to come, come of him. And he denied his own Savior that he walked with and followed and said, I will never leave you. I will die for you. If the rest of these guys leave, I ain't going nowhere. Unless you get caught in there talking about crucifying you, then I'm out of here. And this is where we find them when Jesus, before Jesus shows up. And then it says, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. 
Again, take note of what's going on here. The, 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 the resurrected Jesus, they are behind locked doors and the description says, and then Jesus came and stood among them. <laughs> right? How does that happen? No knocking on the door, no, no unlocking of the door. Jesus came and stood among them. And if you don't believe that's what it's saying, you're going to find out that it is exactly what it's saying in just a second. But this is the resurrected presence of Christ at work. And immediately when he shows up, the emotions shift, don't they? Fearful to gladness. Sadness to delight. But not just the emotions shift, but the position shifts. From recipients of God's message. Let's read in verse 21, it says, Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. From recipients of God's message to deliverers of God's message. Here we see the resurrection brings about the apostolic calling. This is where the disciples become apostles, right? It's when it moves from just them following to them actually being sent of God. They are no longer simply followers of the one who was sent. They are now part of the sent. The resurrection confirms the promises of God are true also concerning their equipping. In other words, he sends, but he doesn't send empty-handed. We hear in, in Jesus' words in verse 22, and when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. When he said what? When he said that as the Father sent me, so I am sending you. Immediately after he says this, he says what? I'm equipping you. Are you tracking with that? See, when you go, you don't go alone. God has, through the resurrection, he has rearranged our position. We aren't simply recipients. We are missionaries. We go. We don't simply receive a message. We share a message. But you don't share the message on your own. When God, through his resurrection, saves a person, he equips that person with the very spirit of God. In fact, it's in Acts chapter 1 as as Jesus is preparing to leave that he tells them, wait. Because not many days from now, you're going to receive power from on high. Talking about the Holy Spirit. And when you receive that power, you will be witnesses, right? The power equips us for the mission. And so here, this is more of a foreshadow as he breathes on them and he says, receive the Holy Spirit. This is not them receiving the Holy Spirit in this moment. And you say, well, how do you know that? Well, because just a few chapters ago, he said, I have to leave in order for you to get him. Right? Says he's not coming until I leave. And so this is foreshadow. This is him saying that, yes, God is sending you. And when he sends you, he's not going to send you empty handed. He's going to send you with power to do the work that he's called you to do. We have the same power to go forth and do the work that God has called us to do. You have the same power to knock on the door of your neighbor, invite them to lunch or invite them to dinner, engage them, befriend them, share the gospel with them, and lead them 
to Jesus Christ. You have that power. Are you tracking with that? He just didn't, he didn't send them in the power of his resurrection. He sent us in the power of his resurrection. The resurrection clarifies their role as missionaries sent by God into the world to declare his glory and his good news to the world. The resurrection gives us the ability to move beyond fear of the world into a position of seeking to win the world because we go with the message of God on the mission of God by the spirit of God into the world. Are you living on mission in light of the resurrection? What does your missional engagement say about the resurrection that you profess and believe? What does your sharing of Jesus say about the resurrection that you profess and believe? What does your open arms to open hospitality to engage neighbor, friend, others around you, people that don't know Jesus, what does it say about the resurrection that you profess and believe because the resurrection brings clarity to your call as a missionary. Are you tracking with that? And then lastly, we find the encounter with Thomas. What does, the, what does Thomas's encounter with the resurrected Savior teach us? It says in verse 24, Now Thomas, one of the twelve called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord, but he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. I will never believe. How do we first find Thomas before his encounter? We find him doubtful. He is the only one left in the, in the, in the usual party of followers who has not seen Jesus. John is the only gospel writer that actually gives Thomas any airtime. Most of the most of most of Tom, the, the references that we have in Scripture about Thomas is just him being listed amongst the other disciples. But John gives him a few passages for us to just kind of get a peek into Thomas to understand about him. Thomas was a very devoted follower of Jesus. When Christ announced once that he was going back returning to the city of Jerusalem in order to resurrect Lazarus, and they didn't understand what he was doing at the time. He said, hey, you know, everybody reported and said, Lazarus is dead. He was like, all right, we're going back. Everybody's looking around like, why are we going back? They just said Lazarus is dead. What's, what's the point? And Thomas says in, in this chapter that, that we have this account, chapter 11 of John, he, Thomas says, let us also go that we may die with him. Now, Thomas believed that they were on a death journey, basically. You know, he thought they were going to get to Jerusalem, they were going to capture him, and that was going to be all she wrote. And so Thomas was like, I have no idea why we're going back for Lazarus. Lazarus is dead, but let's go so we can die along with Lazarus. That's how devoted Thomas was. Let's go. Right? Anybody bout it like that? Bout it is, I don't know how many of y'all know about it, but that's okay. Look it up in UrbanDictionary.com when you get home. So even when he didn't understand Jesus, he was devoted to Jesus, right? But that foundation has somewhat been shaken for Thomas, hasn't it? 
Because he just saw the Jesus that he was devoted to hanging on a cross, as we talked about earlier. That Jesus that he was devoted to is now dead. And so verse 20 highlights a very important point in, in this account of Thomas and the other disciples. Look at verse 20. It says this. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. When, when who had said this? When, when Jesus had said this. When Jesus had said this, he showed the ten, his hands and his side, right? So Jesus unveils the piercing in his hands from the nails that were driven through them and the, and the piercing in his side from the sword that was driven through it. And why is that important to our account of Thomas, you say? Because, because, because of Thomas's response to his brothers when they told him that they had saw Jesus. When they told him that they saw Jesus, Thomas said, unless I see the hands and unless I see his side and place my finger in the mark of the nails and place my hand in the mark of his side, I will never believe. Now, what is, what is going on there? What's happening there? Well, we read in verse 20 that Jesus showed, showed the ten. And can you imagine this story where everyone's talking and, and they're gathering and saying, Thomas, man, you won't believe what just happened. Bro, Jesus is here. No, no, no. Seriously, Jesus is really here. He, show, he showed us his, his side and he, and he showed us his, his hands. He, this is the one. This is the one that we follow for all these years. He is here. He is alive. And, and they're frantically sharing this news with their, with their boy. And Thomas is probably like, bruh, I don't care what you clowns say. Unless I touch him myself, I won't believe you. So it's not about the hands. It's not about even the side. It's about his disbelief, even in the light of so many credible witnesses to this. Thomas is saying, I've walked with y'all. I know y'all, but I don't even believe y'all about this. Are you tracking with that? Now, he has a dozen of his closest brothers, a close to a dozen of his closest brothers. He has his sisters there with him. Mary Magdalene's there. Everybody's telling him, listen, we really saw him. And he's like, mm-mm, nah. Not unless I touch him. It might be good enough for him to just show y'all, I got to touch him. Unless I, or otherwise I won't believe him. Thomas's faith is not a blind one. He's seen and he's heard. He, we're not asking Thomas to believe blindly. He's, he's seen Jesus in operation. Remember John chapter 11 that we just heard about? He witnessed when Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth. Does that make sense? He was there. He was the one that said, let's go and die. Let's just go and be with him. And then all of a sudden he's surprised by what happened. He was there when Jesus fed thousands off of a small lunchbox. He was there when Jesus calmed the waves by saying, peace be still. He was there when Jesus walked in water. He was there when Jesus raised a little girl from the dead. He's seen it all. We're not asking Thomas to believe blindly. 
But see, doubt is, in, is illogical in how committed it remains to the logical. And what I mean by that is that we are so committed to the natural that it doesn't matter how much supernatural things God can show us sometimes. Are you tracking with that? Some of us know how God has moved miraculously in our lives, right? We've seen God do all sorts of things. And yet we remain, eh, I don't know. I don't know, man, you know. Maybe all of this is just kind of circumstance. Doubt is illogical and how committed it remains to the logical. How many of you have wrestled with that level of doubt in your life? Maybe there's somebody here um, that, 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 that has seen everybody around you say, God is real. Jesus is real. No, seriously, look at what he has done in my life. And look at all the look at all the grounds, all the evidence for his for for his reality. And look, he's changed this person around me, and that person around me, and that person around me. And you still aren't sure how to feel about it. Maybe you've seen the change in others. Maybe you've read the scriptures. Maybe you bear witness that there is something special even about the accounts that you read when you read the scriptures. And yet you're saying to yourself, I don't care what those clowns think they've seen. Unless I see him for myself, I will never believe. This may be some of you, but but what happens next to Thomas should bring us encouragement, all of us. Because Thomas has an eyewitness account of all of his brothers and sisters. He doesn't accept it. He has the personal testimony of all the miracles. He doesn't accept it. He has everything he needs to believe, and yet he does not uh, believe. But take note of the patience of Jesus when he shows up on the scene. He shows up and he says, put your finger here. And see my hands? Put out right here. Right there. You see my side? Right here. Put it right there. See, in the midst of Thomas's doubt, and I need you to hear this, Jesus does not push him away. In the midst of his doubt, he draws him closer. See, because he's merciful and he's kind and he's loving, he is patient. See, because he's all these things, he doesn't abandon you in your doubt. He comes after you in your doubt. He, he, he gives you more reasons to believe, not less. Even though it would have been within his right to smite Thomas when he passes through the door, as the scripture says, again, a locked door. Thomas responds and he says, my Lord and my God. And Jesus says to him, have you believed because you have seen me? What happens to Thomas when he comes into contact with the risen Savior? He moves immediately from doubt to awe, from skepticism to worship. Because Jesus' mercy reaches down to him into his doubt and transforms him. 
I believe John, in closing, I believe he leaves us with verse 28 and 29 of Jesus' words to Thomas. I believe he leaves those words directly to the reader. Because Jesus leaves those words, he, in time, he says, blessed are they that will believe without seeing. And then immediately we get verses 30 and 31 that John writes. He says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so what is John saying? He's saying Thomas needed to see. Jesus says, blessed are they that don't need to see, but can just hear and believe. So why did I write the book? So that you would hear and believe. The purpose of the book, the purpose of the gospel of John, the purpose of the scriptures is to bring you into faith and obedience to Jesus Christ. To make what's unclear. Why am I living this life? What purpose is there in this life? Where does it all lead to? What does it mean? Is there any meaning here? Am I wasting it? To bring all of the questions in life that lead to unnecessary doubt. To bring clarity. You are here for Christ. You were made for Christ. And through his resurrection, he affirms not only that you were made for him, but that he died for you. Because of the writings, life makes sense. Because of the scriptures, life makes sense. When we're going through the highs and the lows and the peaks and valleys of life, sometimes it doesn't. But because Christ raised from the grave, we know that at the end, we have the victory. Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians that without the resurrection, none of this makes sense. He says, in fact, if the resurrection did not take place, we are of all people the most to be pitied. Because we have given our lives to a useless cause. But the resurrection brings clarity to it all. Why do you give your life? Why do you share the gospel with your neighbor? Why do you lay your life down? Why do you push aside pleasures in this life? Why do you say no to the temptations that come your way? Because the resurrection is real. And it's true. And it can be banked on. And you will experience eternity with Jesus if you cling to it. Amen. Let's pray.